This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Welcome back to Leadership in Action on Sirius XM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. For new listeners or Sirius XM subscribers, I'm your host, Anne Greenhall, Deputy Director of the Anne and John McNulty Leadership Program here at the Wharton School, University of Pennsylvania. My guest in the second hour is Mark Edmonds, and Mark is Vice Chairman and Regional Managing Partner for Deloitte. Let's welcome Mark on the show. Mark Hi, Ann. Good evening. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you, Mark. Uh, Really a delight. And I'm looking forward to uh, talking with you about a topic that is the signature topic of the show and dear to my heart, and that's leadership. Let me say just a little bit about you, and then we'll learn more as as we go. So for listeners who are not familiar with Deloitte, Deloitte is the world's largest professional services firm employing 70,000 professionals in the United States with audit, financial advisory, tax, and consulting services. And Mark, you've been with Deloitte since 1981, and you've held several leadership roles within the firm, including chair of the Global Committee, and you've worked from Austin, San Francisco, and Singapore, and right now you're involved with Deloitte's NextGen Leadership Development Program. So, Mark, maybe let's begin with the NextGen Leadership Development Program. Tell us a little bit about it. Thank you, Ann. Yes, um, probably about nine years ago, um, we at Deloitte decided that we wanted to develop the next generation, the high-potential partners, Mm -hmm. the partners who would lead our most important clients, lead big businesses, and from which our next CEO or chairman would Mm -hmm. would be elected. And we put these partners through a two-year program, we take them to Army War College, West Point, put them through a one-week business simulation, give them coaches, and really put them through the paces of developing their leadership skills. We now have over 500 partners, eight classes in this group, and they are absolutely terrific. So it's been an honor to be their executive sponsor for eight years. Okay. And, and when we say executive sponsor, say a little bit more about what that means. My job is to work with our staff to make sure that we're developing the right kind of experiences for them to become great leaders. You know, it's not just classroom, as you know. You're, yeah. you're in this business. It's, mm-hmm. it's experiential. So how do we make sure we put them in situations, put them in high-stress situations, have them collaborate together mm-hmm. to develop their leadership skills? So I help develop the strategy for the program and, and then also execute it. So I also get the privilege of going to West Point Army War College and Colorado Springs to participate in these sessions, and it's just been a joy. That's I'm really a client service partner, but that's been you know part of my job as well to develop leaders. Okay, and so as part of your job, uh, is it most of your job, fifty percent of your job, twenty five? How do you how do you juggle that? I look at my forty year career, and I would say <laughs> the first thirty years were devoted to serving clients and okay. uh, probably doing more of that. The last decade, last 10 to 15 years, at least 70 to 80% of my time has been devoted to developing leaders, whether that's serving a big client and building a global team as I did for the last six years, including mm-hmm. the last two from Singapore, or developing leaders more broadly across across the U.S. firm. Oh, wow. Okay. So you have, uh, did I hear you right, 500 who are currently participating in the two-year next-gen program. Is that, is that right? 
That's right. And they've gone through the two-year cycle. Okay. There's been eight, eight classes, so you go through a two-year cycle, and then you are back in your business. We don't take them out of the business. They're still in the business, but we give them this intense training for two years. It just makes them better leaders. I mean, we're really proud of the impact that it's had on them. Yeah, absolutely. And so I'm wondering if you could uh, help our listeners picture and visualize this. So um, maybe is there, um, can you take the point of view of one of the participants and what the experience might look like? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So um, I don't know if you know about Deloitte University. I'm really proud of the firm, by the way. Uh, Deloitte University, we built it a decade ago, and it's where we build our leaders. And so lots of young partners, you know, 50 young partners show up at Deloitte University and have a 24-hour experience that they've never had before, um, where they get to know each other, and they're from all walks of life and very diverse group of partners, and they really don't know what this is. It's 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 almost almost like a secret society. <laughs> and uh, And then participate for 24 hours to learn what the next two years will be like. Okay. And and then we give them a coach. We do an assessment of their leadership capability. And one, one example is we take them to the battlefield of Gettysburg, mm-hmm. and we take them through this experience of understanding the leadership decisions that were made by military leaders during that battle in Gettysburg. And it's a really emotional, moving experience that that all of these partners really remember. So that gets really embedded mm-hmm. in, in their thinking as, as they lead. Okay. And then um, afterwards, what might a partner do? Well, they, as they're going through this two-year program, they're, they're continuing to serve clients. Okay. So what, we, what we hope, when we look at the key performance in, indicators of this program, we look at um, accelerated leadership experiences, Anne. I mean, what we're trying to say to ourselves is if these partners have multiple leadership opportunities over their career, they're going to be better leaders. We, we mm-hmm. want them to feel stretched. We want them to feel stressed, actually. I mean, you're, mm-hmm. a much, you're a much stronger leader if you're put in difficult situations. The great leaders, as you know, over the next 10 to 20 years, are the leaders who are the most adaptable. Yeah. And if you've yeah. been in one leadership role for too long, you, you lose that adaptability. And we think this two-year program helps these partners become Mm -hmm. much more adaptable. All right. So maybe um, I've neglected an important question, and that is just simply, how how do you go about identifying those high-potential executives? That's a great question. We we go to the leaders of each of our businesses, um, as you know, and, and also the CEO of the firm and some of our board members, and we have them look into our partnership. And we're looking for partners that are about seven to nine years of experience. You know, I've been a partner since 1989, so I'm the mm-hmm. older version here. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so seven to ten years of experience. And we look to partners that are on a good trajectory. They're, they're doing very well. They're serving clients very effectively. They're very innovative. They collaborate well. And they have leadership potential. So we look at capability, current capability, and leadership potential for each of these individuals. And they get nominated by these business leaders and put into this this process with me and, and my staff, and we give them a two-year, we think, a pretty awesome experience for them. Mm-hmm. And I'm just, and I'm, I'm really asking this as a genuine question because we, uh, all people, and we here at Wharton um, also struggle with this. I'm thinking very modestly here. I, I have the privilege of being the hiring manager 
for two new open positions, and I'm about to screen resumes. And as I do it, I'm trying to be thoughtful about yeah. uh, unconscious bias and assumptions that I might have that would predispose me in one direction or another. So as as you are looking for something that is is as intangible as potential, how what kinds of um, you know what what do you have in place that might counterbalance uh, sort of predispositions, you know, unconscious predispositions? Well, yeah, I mean it's it's a really good point. Unconscious bias. Um, I make sure that as these people are one, we make sure in our firm that if you looked at our leadership team, it would be diverse. Mm-hmm. Our CEO of our firm is is a female. Mm-hmm. Um, we, the our global CEO is of Indian descent. Mm-hmm. Um, we have lots of. I was on the U.S. board for many years. We have lots of women on our U.S. board, and so the people that are making the decisions to put people in this program you hope have a diverse background. Mm-hmm. But it's a really good question. And I always say to, um, uh, you know, older men like me, they actually have to go the extra mile to make sure that that bias is not in place. So I do look at the portfolio that comes in, the 50 partners that come in to mm-hmm. see whether it is diverse enough. I mean, the CEO, I, I don't just do it, the CEO does right. it and mm-hmm. other leaders. But it's more um, an art versus a science, yeah. but we do test for understatement on diversity, frankly, diversity mm-hmm. and inclusion. That, because you know, we, we have found that if you have a very inclusive culture or you have a very diverse team, that team has the opportunity to solve more complex problems for clients. Mm-hmm. So it's in every company's best interest to do that. Um, so it's, it, it is more art than science. Yeah. And I'm imagining, Mark, is this true that uh, you now have some experience uh, shepherding this program and may have some real insight into the people who are nominating candidates? So, you know, you may have a sense of, of particular patterns and can be on the lookout for patterns that are that are favorable and patterns that might be less favorable. Yeah, I mean, I'm always on the lookout for leaders who have been in the job too long. And I think every <laughs> organization has this, and it becomes too easy. Um, I think accelerated leadership experiences is probably one of the most important things an organization can do. And I think it's my job to see that these partners who have this high potential don't sit in a leadership role too long. I mm-hmm. mean, four to five years for a high-impact leadership position is about all you need. But if you go seven or eight or nine or ten years, it becomes too comfortable. We want we want the partners to feel a little uncomfortable mm-hmm. thinking about, you know, a bigger impact they can have. And then also succession. Uh, you know, when you, mm-hmm. when you take on a leadership role, you should be thinking about your successor from the day you take the job. Mm-hmm. And, you know, developing a couple of partners who could take that role for you, whether it's now because you've got a new leadership role or down down the road. So, right. yeah, that, that's how I'd look at it. Yeah, that's that's a good that's a very good point. So that what I'm hearing you say, it's in the self-interest of not only the firm, but also the people who are nominating others for this uh, for this experience because they're building the fir- the future of their particular arm of the organization. Exactly. The yeah. other thing I'd share, Anne, if I could, is Please. as we 
As we entered this program eight years ago, I didn't know that much about military leadership. I wasn't in the military. But as you probably heard, Mm -hmm. I teach trust-based leadership. What Mm -hmm. what we decided at Deloitte is we wanted to to have trust-based leaders, leaders that are trusting and trusted. We Mm -hmm. think that that's the key to success. And as I began to meet some of these military leaders, you know, some of the generals at West Point and Mm -hmm. some of the folks at Army War College, turns out that the way they lead is somewhat similar. It didn't make sense to me, but, you know, before you can ask a bunch of soldiers to go do a certain thing, mm-hmm. they use the term, I must have, I must walk in the boots of that soldier. Mm-hmm. So that soldier must trust me in the decisions I'm making. Yes, the soldier has to do what I tell them to do, mm-hmm. but there is a huge trust-based element uh, in military that I didn't really understand until I began to spend more time there. So it's nice that that fit in with what we're trying to do. And we don't just do look at military leadership. We look right, at right. You know, other types yeah. of leadership as well. Yeah, that, that's such a, it's a, such a good point because the stereotype would be a command and control and yeah. focus on the task. And what you're really highlighting here is the importance of the relationship and trust. Right. So I am... Um, once once people come into the program, if I could just dig a little bit deeper, they're they're put together uh, for 24 hours and they learn about what the next two years might look like. Could you say a little bit more about that experience? What's you know help us see that from the inside? Yeah, they will they will have their normal day job. They will continue to serve their clients and run their businesses. And they will have two or three weeks out of each year that will be spent either at Army War College, West Point, in Colorado Springs, um, where they have a one-week business simulation. That's a really interesting process, too, where we put them in an environment where they run a business enterprise. And together, they actually um, appoint and select who's the CEO, who's the head (laughs) of marketing, who's the CFO, and together spend a week and we throw challenges at them throughout the week, you know, things that happen in the business, external things that happen that have, you know, negative impact on the business, see how they operate and how they collaborate. And then there's an assessment at the end of the week that I actually went through this, and believe it or not, is pretty emotional. I, mean, you really <laughs> I believe find it. Out, <laughs> you find out a lot about yourself when yeah. you have all your colleagues say, wow, you really didn't deal with me very effectively, Mark. I mean, I, I felt like you didn't listen to me well. And so, you go away with some great learnings on on really how to be self aware frankly oh, that's um, great. but but that's great and and you know so that's really it's about two or three maybe four weeks out of each year for the two year period and then constant connection and communication from from the staff at Deloitte as well all right I want to come back to that, but before I do, let me remind our listeners that you are listening to leadership in action on business radio powered by the Wharton School Sirius x m channel. 132. I'm Ann Greenhall, and I have the great pleasure of speaking with Mark Edmonds, Vice Chairman and Regional Managing Partner for Deloitte. And if you have a question would like to join the conversation, please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. All right, let's talk about this business simulation just a little bit longer. And I smile because... And I can't spill the beans because we have all new incoming MBAs coming very shortly. Next week, they'll set foot on campus. And their very first class is a class called Management 610, which is about leadership and teamwork. And the heart of the course is a business simulation in which students enter. And it's uh, flat. And they, too, just as you described, they choose a CEO. Well, every year we need to 
just test the simulation, make sure everything is working. So I was one of the guinea pigs who who uh, stepped up and said, "Okay, sure, I'll I'll help you test it." So I'm in a group, and now I am I am a lowly <laughs> teacher here. And in my group happened to be another good sport, the vice dean of our undergraduate program, who is far more uh, you know has much higher status than I. And then a couple other staff members, and we're going around, and everybody's choosing roles. And they chose me as CEO <laughs> over the more prestigious <laughs> person, <laughs> which on the one hand was all you know was lovely feedback, but I also had to say to myself that I think they chose that role for me because there was no other functional functional area that I could have possibly done. <laughs> I would have been a disaster in finance <laughs> and all. Yeah. So, but I do appreciate that, uh, you know, that experience, that hands-on experience. Now I'm wondering for the feedback, how is that organized? It, does someone, does a, does an executive coach moderate the feedback that these uh, up and coming execs uh, participate in? Absolutely. We we have this professionally facilitated. We have a group that we use that, that helps us professionally facilitate this. And um, then we also have Deloitte partners. So we one of the really cool things we do is people that have gone through the program, we bring them back to observe and experience and share their experiences to, to, to make it better. So mm-hmm. it's very professionally done. And, you know, you get you get specific feedback on yourself from a professional coach, but also from a group. So you yeah. break it up into groups. You might have four or five at a time that that have dialogue together. And, um, you know, that, that needs to be very disciplined for it to be effective. Definitely. And is there is there coaching then to the participants on how to give effective feedback to each other? There certainly is. It's not <laughs> easy, is it? No, uh, no. Yeah, it's. Uh, I will tell you the, and it comes back a little bit. If I could back up a second, sure. To some of the things we developed over the last ten years, in this trust-based culture, and mm-hmm. we said that. And by the way, backing up a little bit further, about a, about a decade ago, we went into the marketplace and, and asked the market what they thought about us versus our competitors. Okay, this, this is maybe about twelve years ago, mm-hmm. and the market came back with a resounding, "You guys are really good, but you know everybody's pretty good," and. We decided at Deloitte that, you know, we hire really good people. Our competitors do too. But we are going to be better at building trust amongst each other and mm-hmm. our clients. And if we do that, we can have a strong leadership position for a long period of time. So we developed these series of classes called Relationship Mastery. Hmm. And these are day-and-a-half-long classes and the art of empathy. You know, how to walk in someone else's shoes, the art of inquiry, how to turn a Mm -hmm. meeting into a conversation, the art of storytelling, Mm. how to articulate your point of view through storytelling, and the art of engagement, how to lead a highly engaged team. Mm -hmm. Those classes we've taught to thousands of partners and tens of thousands of senior managers and managers in the U.S. and Mm -hmm. around the world, because I taught it in Singapore. And we think that, in addition to experiences out in the field right. will help us become just a little bit better than our competitors at this trust thing. Yeah. And and that can take you a long ways. I mean, I, I deeply believe in this and, and my firm does as well. Oh, very good. So, um, so Mark, on those day and a half classes, for example, on empathy, are they open to, um, you know, the 70 professionals who, 70,000 professionals who work at Deloitte, or are they reserved for those who are in this more high potential uh, cohort? 
Yeah, we decided to start, so it, it was very broad. And by the way, we have 255,000 people globally. That's how ah. big our firm is. <laughs> oh, whoa. Yeah, so it's, it's big in the U.S., but it's really big globally, 255. Wow. Um, so we, we decided, Ann, to start with partners. We said okay. if we can get this right with the owners of the business, mm-hmm. um, then there's a better chance of, of driving change in, in the firm. Yeah. And then we went to senior managers and managers, and now it's delivered you know, to everybody throughout the U.S. And with this next-gen partner group you right. asked me about, I generally ask them to teach this. If you teach something, you really get Ooh. it right. So they've been through the class. So I really put pressure on them to be part of the faculty for relationship mastery because it just makes them better, right? When You, you know this. When yeah. you teach, you get better. Yeah, and it certainly makes you self-conscious, at least for me, because I become keenly aware of the old, you know, practicing what you preach you know, exactly. and just trying to, you know, just trying to walk the walk and talk the talk. So now you said, now you've taught these classes. Is there one that you teach more routinely or a favorite class? I teach them all, but my favorite is empathy. Um, I'll tell you a quick story. Um, <laughs> if my wife is listening, she won't like the story. <laughs> but about a dozen years ago, or maybe 11 years ago, I, I told my wife, I said, I'm flying to Deloitte University to teach the art of empathy. And she looked at me, and I've been married for a long time. Yeah. She said, you're not a really good listener, you know. I mean, I, I love you, but you're not a really good listener. And I said, well, when you teach art of empathy, and this is the truth, you actually talk about empathy mistakes, Okay. So you shine the light on the mistakes we all make every day, so we, so we do fewer of them. And so she said, "Well, you'll be good at that. You'll be <laughs> all the mistakes you make." So sure enough, that is how we teach it. And I love teaching that class because I, I always want to get better at this. I mean, I I, I want to become a better listener. If you can become empathy, by the way, is the killer app to trust. Mm. If you can become more empathic. Mm-hmm you can build more trust. If you can look at the world through someone else's eyes, whether it's a client, your spouse, a friend, you definitely have the opportunity to build deeper trust with them. So I I think that is the key. That was the first class we rolled out, and we we thought that should be foundational. So Mm -hmm. I love teaching that class. That's great. So maybe for our listeners, if we could, what might be some typical empathy mistakes? Well, it's um, kind of checking the box. It's, uh, you know, I, I look like I'm listening to you, but I'm not really listening to you. Uh, I'm, uh, you know, today, in today's world, I'm on my yeah. my iPhone. Right. Um, and so, or, you know, making a comment, making a reaction that d- doesn't really fit in. Um, using, you know, looking at the world through your own lens versus someone else's um, lens. So it, it's really just not listening effectively is, is yeah. how I would describe it. And do you have the participants go through an exercise that might help them practice being more empathetic? Many, many exercises. You'll have someone on one side of the table, someone on the other side of the table, and then someone observe. You know, it's a day and a half long, so you have multiple exercises. We we show videos, mm-hmm. try to make it funny, too. Yeah. We, show all kinds of videos to to lighten things up and, and show people you know how to do things versus not how how to do things so um yeah we we do lots of exercises yeah my uh one of our really star uh, faculty here Sigal Barsed has a i think a wonderful exercise that she calls the perspective exercise and essentially she asks each of us to 
uh, imagine a conflict that we're in. So just, and it doesn't have to be a huge conflict, but a conflict. And then to literally write that conflict from the other person's point of view. So if I'm Anne and I'm having a conflict with John, I have to pretend I am John and write it from John's point of view. And I found that a very powerful exercise because after writing the conflict from someone else's point of view, even though I might not agree, I might still think I'm right. (laughs) It definitely gives me uh, at least a, a greater understanding you know, for yeah. for another person's uh, point of view. So I think I, I think that class sounds wonderful and sounds like it really would go a long way to helping build build trust. So yeah. we have to take just a short break. Um, so I want to ask our listeners to stay tuned because we will be right back. I'm Ann Greenhall, and I have the great pleasure of speaking with Mark Edmonds, Vice Chairman and Regional Managing Partner for Deloitte. This is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. We will be right back. Mark, uh, before the break, we were talking about the next-gen program that you have for uh, development of talent at Deloitte. And we were speaking in particular about some of the courses that are um, open to um, to uh, professionals at Deloitte. I thought I, I might ask you, we mentioned, we talked about the business simulation. I might ask you a little bit about the two to three weeks that some of the high potential talent can spend at either West Point or the Army War College. So can you say a little bit about what that curriculum might look like? Yeah, so for example, at, at Army War College, it's not two to three weeks. It's um, you know part of a week at each of these facilities, ah, and okay. you'll have you'll have some. You know, Army War College is where um, the Army military comes back from the field to you know assess things and, and come up with new strategies. So it's kind of a strategic place for for Army leaders, and so there'll be some classroom work there. But the really amazing thing there is. The Battle of Gettysburg was a pretty mm-hmm. extraordinary battle, and a lot of leadership decisions led to certain results in, in, mm-hmm. in the field. And so we'll actually have some military leaders take the, you know, in this case, it'd be about 35 to 40 partners into the field, and they'll actually walk um, where, for example, the Confederates were charging against the uh, the uh, U.S. Army, basically, and, um, you know, charging up the field. So you could actually feel, you know, mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, what it would be like to have bullets and cannons, cannon fodder raining down on you, and think about decisions to to move troops to different places. So it's pretty experiential, and then you debrief that, you know, mm-hmm. back at their campus. That's a little bit of that. Then if when you go to to West Point, West Point is really an extraordinarily beautiful place yes. on, on the Hudson River mm-hmm. too, and there it's a fair school of leadership is where mm-hmm. we we have these sessions, and so. They do this with many companies, including ours, and um, there we not only put them through um, these mental exercises, but also physical exercises. <laughs> That's great. Lots of physical games that we go through there that are lots of fun, and and these generals will take us up into the hills to these various observation posts and talk about the Revolutionary War and mm-hmm. you know how things occurred along the, the Hudson River. So it's really it, it, we try to grab the emotions of these partners at, at those events, and uh, it seems to work pretty well. And I'm just curious, as as the generals are walking uh, the participants through the action, 
Do they do they stop and ask the um, Deloitte professionals like what what would you have done had you yeah. had you been here? Do they ask them to participate in the decision making? Yes, yes, uh, it's it's that's a great <laughs> question. They they do, and our partners are really curious, so they ask a lot of questions. They, okay. they you know, why why would they make that decision? Why why did they? You know, have all these troops go over here, and they, you know they put them in harm's way. And so these historians are kind of amazing. They yeah. know so much about all these battles. And so our partners are generally very curious, and uh, it drives a lot of dialogue. So it's not a one-way delivery to your to your point. Right. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry, Mike. You seem my dear colleague and co-host isn't here because he is. Um, he's a bit of a historian. He's a management professor, but he's a bit of a historian. And Gettysburg is one of his favorite places to bring. Executives, so I, I'm wow. very. I understand uh, what what you are doing here, and and the value as well. So um, we talked a little bit about the opportunity for the high potential professional to take some stretch experiences. So could you talk a little bit about you know how does that work? How do you how do you pick up <laughs> you know someone and and move him or her from here to there? and have that work for Deloitte, but also for the professional? Well, what what I try to do as the executive sponsor is work with leadership to say, when new opportunities come up to uh-huh. serve our best clients, lead a big business, go on a global assignment, there's a rebuttable presumption you look to this pool of talent first. If you're going to make a decision to develop these leaders and you think they have high potential, then you better put them in those positions, right? So we push on this idea of a rebuttable presumption that you look to this pool of talent first. Now, we have 6,000 partners, so we have lots of people that can do lots of things, and so it doesn't hmm. always work out that way. But it has, if you look at our KPIs on accelerated leadership experiences. I'm pretty proud of the last eight years, Mm -hmm. how many multiple experiences many of these partners have had, and actually what great leadership positions they're in today. I mean, they're running our biggest businesses. Many have gone global. Um, I mean, Kathy Engelbert, who is the the CEO of our firm today, she came out of this program. Okay. So, so, um, I'm just trying to imagine uh, if, if I if I'm in a top position and I have a just a challenging project ahead, then is there any tension between awarding that project to one of these next-gen professionals as opposed to bringing up someone on my team to take that challenging project? Yeah, there always is, Anne, right? Okay. I mean, there's always, well, this is my guy or gal. You know, what are you right. doing here? And so, yeah. Yeah, and so we as partners and owners of the business either have this as our strategy to develop and deploy high potential partners or not. And so you're always going to run into some partners that say, no, this this person knows things better. It's going to be better for us. And sometimes that is the case. So we're pretty reasonable, you know, Mm when we talk about it. But but if this is your strategy, then you need to be very aggressive in deploying these partners on, on the best opportunities. And I feel like we have mm-hmm. over the last seven or eight years. I feel like they're they're getting great opportunities. That's great. It so, seems to be working. Yeah, so then it becomes a matter of corporate culture then. That's right. That's right. You know, that this is what we that this is more the norm. <laughs> this is what we do. And maybe it is the case that um a particular manager has the opportunity to, to choose someone closer at home rather than take in someone 
uh, new. But yeah. for the most part, there's a culture in which this is this is what we do, and we want to give our high potential people these opportunities. Yeah, we. I think that in the last ten years or so, um, the culture that we've developed at Deloitte is one of humility. You know, very. very and by the way, um, one of the really fun things I got to do is do video interviews hmm. with people outside of business. So I'll give you these three names, for example. This is kind of a good way to think about it. I interviewed Steve Kerr, and okay. even if you're not a Golden State Warriors fan, he's a pretty yeah. amazing individual. He's right. the coach of the Golden State Warriors, and his backstory is incredible. And I also interviewed Shane Battier. He played for the Miami Heat, and he was known as the No Stats All-Star. Michael Lewis wrote a big New York okay. Times article about him. So he makes his team better is the theme around Shane. And I also interviewed this guy named Michael League, who – runs this band called Snarky Puppy out of <laughs> Brooklyn. They won three um, Grammy Awards, a pretty famous jazz band. Okay. And the amazing thing I found out, Ann, from the one-hour interviews with each of these three individuals who are different walks of life in different fields, is the combination of humility and confidence hmm. are the key to their leadership and actually what we want at Deloitte. Humble enough to know what I don't know, yeah. and I, I need to gather this information, but once I have all of that, confident enough to know where I'm going to go so that people will follow me. Because leadership is, is only as good as your followers, right, And I mean, right. if no yeah. one follows you, you're not a leader. You're right. just a manager. <laughs> and so those three individuals outside of business – taught my aha moment in the interview is, oh my gosh, I mean, what they're talking about is exactly what we're trying to do at Deloitte. So we we use those videos in these classes as well. Oh, that, that's really, that's very good. And I, and I appreciate your point because it certainly does take confidence. In fact, uh, on the show long ago, I think we had Caddy Kay on and talked about confidence and competence, uh, both. But we need at the same time to, yes, be assertive, but also have humility to know that we don't know everything and we're not we're not always right. But now I might I might uh, tease you a little bit on the manager and the and the leader, because certainly, well, there's a classic there's a classic uh, article, Harvard Business Review article about the difference between managers and leaders. And the argument goes that uh, leaders are looking, you know, look ahead to the future, that they're all about um, problem posing, imagining the problem on the horizon before it is even uh, even on our doorstep, and that managers are about problem solving and the status quo. Yeah. So that distinction, um, that distinction is very uh, handy and attractive. But in my experience, I've always thought or hoped that the best managers uh, also exercise leadership and the best yeah. leaders also can be good managers. So I wonder if, if you're leading and no one's following Jeff Klein, if he were here, he would say that would make you the lone nut, <laughs> is what he would say. <laughs> yeah, so, and you know, I, I, I disagree with Harvard, God bless them, <laughs> and I agree with you. Oh, that's nice. To me, the, the difference is leading is getting some one to do something because they want to do it. And yeah. managing is getting somebody to do something because you told them to do it. Yeah. And so that, that can be in the current, in the now. And so, mm-hmm. you know, our leaders, you know, we have thousands of leaders around the world that have yeah. to have strong influence leadership skills. And if you can't 
uh, you know, you don't own anybody. At, at Deloitte, tomorrow morning, everybody could leave, right? We're, That's we're in a true. kind of company where everybody could leave and go somewhere else. And so you're trying to build relationships with each other and your clients. And so if you don't have influence leadership skills, you're going nowhere. And so to me, that's the difference between managing and leading. And you're exactly right. Sometimes we exercise leadership skills, sometimes management skills. What I found is in Mm. every organization, we exercise too darn much management skills, Mm -hmm. not enough leadership. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really like your point. And I sometimes think about it as um, leadership maybe at its its best is – as you said, sort of, um, or I would put it, pulling others along rather than pushing them, you know, so that they're yeah. they're acting because they want to, not because you've told them to do that. Now, you know, early in the top of our hour, you know, not only have you sp- spoken about the classes that the, uh, you know, top potential take, the experience at the Army War College or at West Point, but you also talked about assessment. So I'd like to come back to that. Can you speak about the kinds of assessment tools that you use at Deloitte? Yeah, they're, they're tools that are, you know, built in-house, but, you know, we, you know, Marcus Buckingham's book on yes. strengths-based mm-hmm. assessment, mm-hmm. We, we really believe in that. You know, for years, I think most organizations would would sit someone down and say, you know, you're really good at this, but this is really what you need to improve. You really need to get better at this 20% thing. And Marcus Buckingham basically articulated that if you can make the strengths better, then that's going to be a higher-performing individual. So we're trying to embed a lot of that in our thinking. We're also trying to take the numerical evaluations out of Mm -hmm. how we evaluate people. You're a 1, you're an A, you're a B. No, Mm -hmm. you're, you're... you're in, you know, you, you can use heat maps, you can use, you know, all kinds of different charts, whatever you want to do, but you're in this quartile in terms of your capability to do this mm-hmm. and your, your ability to do that. So ours is pretty customized. It's, it's for mm-hmm. our firm. And, you know, we're trying to make people that are not numbers anymore, but they're, they're human beings and individuals. And, mm-hmm. you know, that, that's a journey for us. You know, we're constantly tinkering with that. We're we're constantly wanting to try to get better at that. Yeah, Mark, I'm uh, I'm very interested in that. So, am I hearing you right? Are you saying that at Deloitte, uh, the is there such a thing? I should ask. Is there such a thing as an annual performance review? Yes. Okay, and is it less numerically based than it used to be? Absolutely. And and yet there is still an uh, element of evaluation, and maybe that comes, as you said, in a heat map, maybe illustrating where someone is high you know, or strong in this area and maybe yeah. a little weaker in that area. Is that what I'm hearing? That's exactly right. And, uh, you know, what we had done in the past, and is we had spent so much time evaluating our people, whether it's partners or staff, we said we need to spend more time developing them, right. developing yeah. them and their career. And so if you look at um, evaluation, development, career development, those three things, we had 80% on the evaluation. And so we're right. on this transformation to spend, to get leaders to spend more time. You know, what's the next thing for you? I, I know here's how you got to value it this year. Here's where we're going to get paid. But what do you, where do you want to be in three years? Or, right. You know, this this thing you're really good at, we need to make sure that gets deployed over here in Deloitte because, I mean, Deloitte has given me so many opportunities, Anne. I mean, I feel like I've had 20 careers over 38 yeah. years doing many different things. And so we need to get the get people in the right places to have the highest impact 
at the firm. We think this transformation, we call it our career development advisor transformation, our CDA mm-hmm. transformation, to get more, less evaluative and more development and career advice to our people, in particular our partners. Oh, very good. Let me come back to that. But before I do, and let me remind everyone that you are listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. I'm your host, Anne Greenhall, and I really am enjoying and hope you are my conversation with Mark Edmonds, Vice Chairman and Regional Managing Partner for Deloitte. So I, I'm, I'm going to share, and, and listeners who know me will be tired again because this is one of my favorite books, but I'm going to share with you, Mark, uh, a book written by uh, a author named Sheila Heen and her co-author Douglas Stone. They are out of Harvard. It's a wonderful book, and it's called Thanks for the Feedback. <laughs> and the reason I bring this book to your attention is that she, she make, she, they both make a wonderful point about how we tend to hear uh, feedback comes in three categories. It can be appreciative, you know, the simple thank you. It can also be developmental coaching, and it can be evaluative, so that, you know, that ranking or the numbers. But the rub is, she says, that we tend to hear all feedback, even the thank you, as evaluative. And she spends time not so she does do this she does talk about how to give feedback but she spends even more time in this book on how to receive it and i think that's a really uh refreshing point of view on the feedback process and one of her one of her takeaways is to hear the coaching in the criticism and she gives uh you know just wonderful examples and i'm making making up one but for example if i am chronically late to a meeting i might have to meetings or you know our monthly staff meeting and i'm just always late <laughs> may not be right. really late but always late and my colleague again john says to me afterwards you know ann it would really it would really be helpful if you would show up on time and then in my head i think john who the heck does he think he is he is, he's, he's later than I am. I'm five minutes late. He's always 10 minutes late. What a hypocrite. But her point would be to, that even the hypocrite, <laughs> if you can, you know, bring down the defenses and hear the coaching in that critique, John's actually right. I should be on time. It would be better for the, you know, for the whole group. So that might be a book that you might enjoy and uh, bring into like your into book. your repertoire. I think we should. And the other thing I'd say, Anne, is we, if you look back on the last twenty years, um, to, so many people have not had courageous conversations. You're a little bit too uh, nice. This person works for me. I don't really right. want to be critical of them. I want them to work really hard for me. Yeah. You're not honest with them. And so we right. call that courageous conversations. Yeah. Be honest with them. Actually, Pat Lencioni, who's a really good author, yes. too, yes. calls it the tell the kind truth. So don't, yeah. don't, don't embarrass them, but tell them in a kind way. Um, so that they can receive it the right way. But that sounds like a great book that I definitely want to read. Well, okay, one more then, and I know that you'll like it. Um, both authors, Heen and Stone, their first book was called Difficult Conversations. And what they talk about is the challenge of giving honest and benevolent feedback. Because we tend to think we, you know, we tend to think of honest feedback as being brutal and true, 
and benevolent feedback as being nice but insincere. <laughs> yeah. So the challenge is to give feedback that is honest, but feedback that people can hear. <laughs> right. And that is that is it is truly such a you know it is not an easy thing to do. But if we're able to do that, um, and they do give a few tips, and I'll just share one, and that is to look to the future. You know, rather than talking about what all went wrong and all the bad things you did and all the mistakes you made in the past, which is undoable because the past is the past and there's no hope, <laughs> but right. rather to look forward and to say, you know, like next time, uh, instead of this, how about that, that it gives the recipient a chance to have hope because I can correct what I did wrong in the past if I'm looking, you know, if I'm looking to the future. So. Let me not belabor because it's the teacher in me, but Mark, you might enjoy you might enjoy those authors, and they would definitely complement the work by Lencioni. I like it. I like it. Very good. Well, now we're coming around the corner here, and I might, uh, if I may, just ask a little bit more about you personally, if I can, and uh, just a playful question. One I like, you know, Jeff, Mike, and I always like to ask our guests: When you were a teenager, did you imagine? that you would be doing what you're doing right now. I had no idea. I wanted to be a professional golfer, and it turns out I wasn't very good, so I wasn't able to do that. <laughs> That's so great. Now, But now I'm curious, uh, professional golfer, what was it about being a professional golf- golfer that caught your attention? Well, as a young boy in Southern Virginia, I was actually oh. pretty good in that market. And then I went to uh, the story is I went to University of Texas and oh. played nine holes with the then coach, a guy by the name of George Hannon. And he actually told me that I wasn't that good. And oh. he did me a favor. You know, he really he humbled me a bit. And I ended up going to school here and studying accounting and business and, and not playing golf. And so I, I enjoy golf today. It was, it's probably the best thing that ever happened to me is he was honest with me. He gave me good feedback, right? And I received it properly yeah. to uh, to not take that path because I was pretty good but not good enough to play at that level. Okay. And so you then uh, just say again, so where did you go as an undergrad? University of Texas. University of Texas. And you studied business. Right. I got in the accounting program and started my career in Houston. I went to Houston, Denver, D.C., Dallas, San Francisco, Singapore, Austin over over 40 years. (laughs) That almost sounds like Route 66. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Okay. And so um, then did you go into business with sort of a practical mindset? In other words, you knew that you wanted to have a career, maybe have a family, things like that. Like what drew you to business? Yeah, I really, uh, I started in business management in Austin, and then I took my first accounting class and actually liked the problem-solving nature of it. And so started my career in audit for a year, and then I went into the tax program and liked the fact that tax was this kind of complicated, you know, problem-solving area. And I was in tax for a long time, but the last 15 years I've really been in leadership, leading big accounts and leading regions and, and industry groups. So I, I've done so many different things, yeah. and it's been fantastic. Oh, that's great. Well, we have a wonderful accounting professor here named Brian Boucher, who opens up uh, one of our introductory courses by saying, and I just found this captivating, accounting is the language of business. <laughs> That's true. Isn't it true? It isn't it yeah, true. You need accountants. You need good accountants. Everybody does. And and as a business person and I'm and I'm ashamed to say that I'm not 
uh, literate in this way, but certainly having fluency and familiarity with accounting, uh, it makes complete sense. It makes complete sense to me. So uh, along the way, though, you became, as if I, as I'm understanding, uh, less of a uh, accountant and more of a client manager. Is that true? Working more yeah, with clients. Right. So how did that that's transition right. happen? Well, I really liked the human dynamic part of our business. Um, you know, we have a lot of smart technical people, and you know, I was a tax person, and you know, I was pretty good at it. But maybe I wasn't as good as the other people. But I was pretty good at at understanding people and building relationships and building trust. And I, I saw that that seemed like that was an important part of our business, and I enjoyed that. And I enjoyed developing younger people, too. So I like the human dynamic part of our business. I've really been doing that for maybe 20 years now. Mm -hmm. um, so it's been, you know, and the firm's been really supportive in doing that. And and was there a moment when you realized that that was a strength of yours? Did something happen? Yeah, you know, I'm not sure. I mean, we've had, you know, different wins. You know, you win clients yeah. at different times, and you think that's based on the strength of relationships. So I feel like I've had a lot of victories there, but but a lot of losses along the way, too. I, you know, I, I like to tell people about my failures, too. And, uh. you know, most most of the failures in, in leadership are when you you get too full of yourself. You you mm -hmm. have a little bit too too much hubris. You you get a new job and you think that you're really important. It turns out you're not that important. I mean, what's important is your engagement with with everyone else. And so, man, I, I tell people all the time. I've had plenty of failures over my career. I mean, I've had a great career, but those failures have made me stronger, made me better, and made me learn. Mm -hmm. And would you say that? Is it, and I don't mean to push too much here, but would you say that just having the failures reminded you that that was a pattern of reminding to just to keep humble? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. The first big national leadership job I got, Ann, in 19, uh, 1991, uh, I remember showing my business card to my mom, um, <laughs> and it was National Industry Leader of Energy Resources, because I'm an energy guy by background. Just business card. My mom looked at it and she said, "That's really cool." And then she said, "Marky," because she always likes to call oh, me Marky. I love she's it. Going to share something with me. And she yeah. Said, now you know, the longer your title, the less important you are. And she wanted to remind me that That's you know, great. I know you have this big title, but stay humble. And that that was a really good lesson from my mom. She's still around today, man. And she she uh, she gave it to me there, and I'll never forget it. Right? I mean, you yeah. do need to stay humble. Indra Nui, chairman and CEO of PepsiCo Company, has a wonderful and similarly charming story where her mother basically said to her, listen, you may be chairman and CEO, but at home, you're wife and mother. <laughs> That's right. So she really made sure she was clear. Well, Mark, I really want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me tonight about the Next Gen program and about Deloitte. It's been a pleasure. Really. And is, is there anything that you would just direct uh, people out there who are interested in Deloitte? Where would you point them? <laughs> yeah, Deloitte.com. We hire you know, thousands of people every year. Um, we're an incredible organization, and I'm really proud of the journey we're on. And we solve complicated problems with clients, but we also do good things in the world. We have people that, that give back a lot in every community they work in from every city that I've worked in, and it's, it's a pretty extraordinary organization. I'm really proud to be a partner here.
Well, it's been a pleasure to have the opportunity to speak with you. So, Mark, thank you so much. Thank you, man. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 